0: Welcome back to another episode of People or Product. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, I got the pleasure to talk to Teresa Torres. She is incredible, and if you haven't already been following kind of the hashtag product or you haven't made a list, you know, a Twitter list for yourself to, to follow the top people in product, then you probably... Um, Well, if you have done that, for sure, she's on your list. She is incredible. Uh, She's an author, a speaker, a product discovery coach, and um, a part of Product Talk. And she's recently released a book called Continuous Discovery Habits, Discover Products That Create Customer Value and Business Value. I loved this conversation. I recently read her book, and I was so excited to talk to her because it's such a practical approach to say, how do you create rhythms and habits and routines in a very practical way, in a very sustainable way, in a very structured way that allows you to make sure that you're still moving towards business value and customer value? And that's hard. That's hard work. And we drove into it. We talked about that continuous discovery. We talked about the space between outcomes and possibilities, and how lateral thinking can expose you to more possibilities. And, and really, this is the thing that I loved, is she, she mentioned that accountability should be set towards how often are you spending time with your customers? I think you're going to love this conversation, so let's jump right in. Teresa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'd love to just hand it right back to you and kind of have you introduce yourself, uh, your story, and how you got into this crazy world of product that we love.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm Teresa Torres. Today, I work as a product discovery coach, although this year that's shifted a little bit into I mostly design and teach online courses, Um, and I'm letting my partner, Hope Gurion, do most of the coaching. Um, and how did I get into this? Uh, I was really lucky as a college student, I was introduced to um, human centered design in the world of human computer interaction. Um, and I graduated and thought, Oh, this is how business works. I can't wait to go get started. And then quickly saw that it's not at all how business works. Um, and my very first job was actually as a front end software developer. That was like my guys for getting into do design work because it was the late nineties. And there weren't a lot of design jobs. There were some, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I had, I I sort of set the tone like most of my full-time employee experience was in dual roles. So I was both a front end software developer and a designer in my first role. Um, In my second company, I was hired as a design. Nope. Again, as a front end developer and did front end and design work, but then very quickly moved into a designer product manager role. Right, Um, And then in my third company, I was hired as a director of UX, and then quickly realized they had no product function um, and became their director of product and UX. Um, And then from there went into the leadership route and ran product and design teams. Um, I was the CEO of a a startup during the 2008 economic downturn, um, and really just sort of saw the same problems everywhere. And that's that teams just don't spend enough time with their customers. So decided I wanted to shift my focus and try to solve
0: that problem. So you've had this concept, this this space that you've been talking about for a while now uh, called continuous discovery. Uh, Now, I think we all know, we all have different definitions of what discovery is. I mean, like, especially in the agency world, we all have like a discovery phase, right? Or teams will have a discovery, you know, brainstorming session or whatever. Continuous though, it ensues that it's like, it's like Simon Sinek. it's an infinite game. We're going to keep doing this. Yeah. What, what, tell me more about this idea of continuous discovery.
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think a big misunderstanding is it's not a phase. I mean, I get when you're doing a project, it might be a phase, um, which is why we see a lot in the sort of agency world because they mm-hmm. tend to sell projects. Um, but if you're internal and you're working on a digital product, your digital products never done, like we don't l- release a digital product and say, all right, well, we're done with that mobile app. We're never going to touch it again or if we do, it starts to decay and languish and it's not gonna be a viable product for very long. Um, And so part of this idea of continuous discovery is recognizing that our products are never done. We need to be continuously discovering how to make them better. And discovery is a little bit of jargon. I think it's helpful jargon, but it basically just represents how are we making good decisions about what to build? Um, And we tend to contrast that with delivery. So discovery versus delivery. So discovery is the work we're doing to make good decisions. Delivery is the work we're doing to build, uh, ship, and maintain a production quality product.
0: And you, now I understand a little bit better because I, you know, you talk about trios, which um, mm-hmm. I've heard them called triads. I've heard them called squads. I mean, there's, there's lots of different names for what, for what that can represent, but trios. Mm-hmm. Now I understand, and maybe you can unpack what a trio is, because now we understand why you think of these three roles, because I think you've had all three of those mm-hmm. roles. So tell me a little bit about trios and how they kind of fit into this process or this, this methodology of continuous discovery.
1: Yeah. So I didn't invent the idea of a trio. It's been around for a long time, right? We've heard about the three amigos, the three-legged stool, the triads, like there's a million terms for it. I labeled it a trio because I like simple language. It's, that, it's I agree really completely. It Thank
0: you. Thank you. <laughs>
1: um, and I think here's the idea. It's an old idea and it keeps coming up. And finally, we're starting to shift towards this idea of a product manager, a designer, and a software engineer working together from the very beginning to decide what to build. And this idea resonated with me from the very beginning because I have played all three roles. I personally have always blended the boundaries of those roles. I think the best teams do that because not all product managers are the same. Not all designers are the same. Not all engineers are the same. So I think it's more about how do you as a team leverage each other's strengths to get to the best decisions about what to build. Um, and that really requires true cross-functional collaboration. And in business, we kind of give lip service to collaboration. I
0: was going to say, I um, love that word and no one knows what it means. Yeah. So yeah. here's what
1: I, I'll put I'll paint a picture. If you have a product manager, a designer, and an engineer working together and they disagree and they escalate the decision to somebody else, that's not cross-functional collaboration. Mm. If the designer and the um, engineer are arguing over something that can't be implemented in the design and they fall back to one person winning, that's not cross-functional collaboration. And here's the key. We have this like opinion battle of like, me versus you and we're trying to win, that's -hmm. not collaboration. Winning is if you like one idea and I like another idea and we can't agree, we need to find a new idea that we both like. It's that simple, right? right? Like collaboration is we need a solution that we're all happy with. And for those three rules, it's really critical that we find a solution that all three are happy with because we want usable products, we want feasible products, we want viable products, we want desirable products. And those three rules represent that. I'm going to add, we also want ethical products and hopefully all three represent that. Yeah. Um, And so I think we need true cross-functional collaboration to get to really good
0: products. Now, I've heard you talk before about, you know, this idea of um, shared understanding. And and now we've started using even, uh, I used to to use the word shared understanding almost to the point where the team was just like, shut up, stop saying those two words together. (laughs) But um, we started even um, shifting that language to like a commitment, a commitment to, okay, we've made a decision, we're going to commit to that decision and we're going to keep, we're going to move forward. Because one of the things that I struggle with collaboration is there's this feeling of the need for consensus. Yeah. Um, right. And so where do you, where do you land when you think about collaboration and this idea of consent over consensus or, you know, um, how to move things forward when maybe not everybody's like 150% just like ready to, you know, blow off the competitive cannons for the idea to to move forward.
1: Yeah. So first of all, collaboration is not consensus. Let's just get clear there because yep. consensus is a nightmare, <laughs> but we don't have time in business for consensus. That's the reality, uh, right? Yeah, like yeah. I remember in college, there were these dorms that would like, pick rooms by consensus. And they'd be these like 12 hour epic meetings and everybody else made fun of them. Right. Cause it's just, that's a dumb way to do things. Yeah, And I get it's a little kumbaya ish and that's great and whatever, but we don't have time for that in business. Like that's just not the reality we mm-hmm. live in. Um, I think, so the reason why I talk a lot about a shared understanding and a lot of the tactics in the book help you externalize your thinking Yep, is that I think we can't really get alignment and have a shared understanding without doing that. And we're not likely to agree if we're all making a decision from a different knowledge base. So I think step one to making collaboration work is we have to learn together and we have to share our thinking and visualize it and make sure we're all aligned around what do we collectively know? So, most really good. So, I feel like most disagreements come from. I'm relying on some data and you're relying on different data. And so we're drawing different conclusions. Yeah. So that's the first piece is that if, and that's why the trio needs to do discovery together, right? It's helping us build the shared knowledge base, the shared foundation, so that we're more likely to agree. Now we're not always going to agree, right? Like let's say we're prioritizing opportunities and um, one looks pretty good to you and a different one looks pretty good to me. I have this personal philosophy in life that I think applies really well here, which is, create awesome options, Mm. right? So like, if you're Mm. trying to figure out where to work, don't just go get one offer that you're excited about, go get three offers that you're excited about. When you're in the product world, when you're generating solutions, don't pursue one solution you're excited about, find three that you're really excited about. And so if you're thinking about this from the trio standpoint, usually it's like, I have my favorite, you have your favorite, and the options aren't all awesome. They're Mm -hmm. polarizing, right? I want to see three awesome options that not everybody has to be equally excited about, but somebody needs to be excited about each one of them. And everybody needs to think all three are good.
0: And then- Yeah, interesting.
1: And then if you like one a little more than I do, but I still like it, if we go with that option, I'm not all bent out of shape over it. It's still an awesome option, right? And I think we just don't do the work to get to three awesome options. Right. And we think like, oh, we have one awesome option and these bad options and you want this bad option. And so I'm going to disagree with
0: you. So it does require that having that shared context, like I know why you're coming with that. And we talk about having good intent. And so, or, you know, expecting that the person has good intent, we all want to do good work for the most part. There are those humans that maybe don't, but for the most part, we assume that everybody wants to do good work. And that we all have the best of intentions for what's going to get the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to shift just a little bit because you talk a lot about outcomes over output. And how does that play into this idea of, making a decision based off your focus on one or the other oh, well, yeah. uh, outcomes versus output. So if I'm, yeah. if I'm focused just on the solution and I'm trying to make these decisions and we have these, maybe even multiple solution options in front of us, I still might be still focused on like, what's the thing we should make. Yeah. Right. Um, how does, how does that decision making um, I guess tree move up and down?
1: Yeah. So, First of all, most humans think in solutions. It's just how our brains work. Yep. Solutions are shiny, right? Um, and so that's good. Like we, we wanna acknowledge that. And the last thing I want people to do is to like push back when someone gives a suggestion, a solution and say, oh good no, thing. Teresa says, do an opportunity, do an outcome. Like we think in solutions, we gotta meet people where they are and acknowledge their solution. Yep. And do the work to dig in and understand like why is this solution needed? What's the implied need? Um, mm. so we can work backwards so we can start with a solution, uncover the implied need, and then think about if we address that need, which I, um, call opportunities just to represent and points I love and that desires. language, by
0: the way, I love the idea of opportunities. It's so good. Yeah.
1: Um, but we also need to think about not just opportunities usually represents customer value.
0: Mm-hmm. We also
1: need to be thinking about business value and that's mm-hmm. where I think the outcome is important. So what impact is it going to have on our customer in a way that has an impact on our business? Um,
0: How do you find that?
1: Yeah, well, ideally, so there's a little bit of a top-down and a a bottoms-up. So top-down, most most organizations are profit-driven. Or if they're nonprofits, they're mission-driven. But the equation looks the same. If you're profit-driven, what are the inputs? Increase revenue, decrease costs. If you're nonprofit, mission-driven, what are the inputs? Increase development dollars, decrease costs, right? Which drives impact. So from there, we have to ask for this organization, how do we increase revenue? How do we control costs? And usually your products and services play a role on one or both sides of that equation. Of course. Most product teams are on the revenue side. So let's focus there. So if I'm a company like um, Facebook and I'm saying, uh, I'm trying not to use Facebook in my examples because people hate them. If I'm a company <laughs> like Netflix- It's
0: too bad. They have they have an incredibly complex piece of technology that faces a lot of people, but you're yeah, absolutely right. That is yeah. true. true.
1: Let's, let's talk about Netflix because Netflix okay. is still kind of a yeah. media darling. So yeah. if we take a company like Netflix, we have to ask, how does Netflix generate revenue? Well, this is tied to their business model. So we need to look at, okay, their subscription business. What are the key metrics tied to a subscription business? It's probably customer acquisition, customer retention customer satisfaction, all these inputs into lifetime value of a customer, right? Right. So from there, we now can ask, how does the product drive those outcomes? And that's going to start to get us at product outcomes. So things like Netflix probably cares about how much you watch Netflix. So some engagement metric, I suspect it's something like average viewing minutes per week. What right. it actually is, doesn't matter, but something like that. Something like that. Now we're down to a metric that's occurring in the product, which means a product team can directly influence it.
0: Right. Because the argument often is, is well, I all agree. We want our products to be influencing business and customer. And yet the excuse I hear a lot is I don't have enough influence beyond what my product does.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So by doing that sort of metrics tree, right. we're making sure that we, we're picking a product outcome that drives a business outcome. And we got to follow through and make sure that as average viewing minutes go up, that they actually retain longer and that it is driving subscriber revenue. But we are starting with a theory. Here's how mm-hmm. the product is going to derive the business outcome.
0: Um, yeah, I love that. I love that language because it not only speaks to the trio, and I think you you mentioned this in the book, but it also, um, it's leadership language as well. Yeah. And, and a lot of time there's, we, we run into this a lot where you'll have the the trio or the or the product teams isolated over here, basically saying leaders don't know what I do and don't uh, get it. And leaders are going, I don't know why they're not building more features and giving me more things and yeah. why we're not seeing more money or more savings from it. Yep. And there's a tension there how, how do you reconcile that between, you know, the, the conversation that happens to has to happen between two different people that can be seemingly thinking about different things, but they both desire the best, best outcome for the customer and the business.
1: Yeah. So I think what's happening is that we're having that conversation just at the solution level, right? Mm-hmm. So the business leaders say, build these solutions, What they're not communicating is build these solutions because we think it serves these customer needs and it will create this business impact. So it's right. a It's implied, right? Like their brain made fast inferences, and those are the inferences. They may not be aware those are the inferences, but they're there, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they tell them to a product team, and the product team implements those solutions, not as fast as the leaders want because everything takes longer than we always hope for. Always, right? And and we and the way we communicated those solutions wasn't very clear, so it doesn't exactly match the leaders' um, vision and. It falls short of expected impact because we didn't make all of our thinking visible. So we didn't examine it, we didn't test it. And mm. so we build the things, We don't. it doesn't drive the business the way we thought it would. And then it ends up being this vicious cycle. What do our business leaders do again? They come up with the next set of solutions to throw over the wall to the product team where they're gonna fall short, right? And so I think this is the root of outcomes over output. Stop telling your exactly. teams what to build and really do the work to uncover those inferences and look at your business and say, what's the business value you need this product team to create? And then let them go figure out by talking to customers, what's the customer value that gets you there.
0: Which requires a certain level of trust and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to be willing, which as a leader, I know I've built products with my teams before. There's a moment when you say, here's what we're shooting for. Here's the, the result that we're trying to hit, the opportunity that we're trying to capture. Um, and then you have to go, come, I'm excited to see what you come up with. Yeah. And that, that loss of control is extremely uncomfortable. It um, is.
1: And I think a lot of leaders aren't willing to do that, but because they're not willing to do that, they're getting, I mean, Marty Kagan says you're getting 50% out of your engineers. If mm. you are just asking them to write code, I think that estimate is too high. Frankly, I, I think you're getting like 10% of the value out of your engineers. And it's because. Humans are natural problem solvers and your business leaders are not technology experts, most of them, and they don't know what to ask for. Um, I'm reading, uh, I forget the author's name, but it's Ask Your Developer by the founder of Twilio. Oh yeah, I
0: have that.
1: It's phenomenal. And it's just all about like, give your teams problems to solve. Um, And he implies this, where I'm gonna make it a lot more explicit because some people confuse customer problems and business problems.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: I want business leaders to give their their product teams, business problems to solve. And I want them to trust their product teams to discover the customer problems that will help solve those business problems. And this is the difference between like giving a team an opportunity versus giving them an outcome using my language, Mm -hmm. right? So I want the business to say, we have a problem with customer retention. Right. And maybe the product leader, your chief product officer is helping the teams Form that theory of how the product can drive that metric. So the the product leader is probably involved with, oh, we think engagement will drive retention, right, right? Right. But then from there, I want the product team to have the autonomy to look at retention and run after. I mean, to look at engagement and run after it.
0: Right. So they get to explore the different opportunities for how you create solutions that are about higher engagement.
1: Yeah, and I think this is critical because most companies have a lot of different types of customers. Yep. And if you push all those decisions up to the leaders, what's at the top of the organizational hierarchy, a small number of people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a small number of people can't be experts in your complex ecosystem that your products and services live in. Right. They can be experts on the health of the business and what the business needs. Yes. And so then if you push, if you get really clear about this is what the business needs, And you push the customer value down to all of your teams. Now you have tons of teams, depending on your company size, going out and exploring customer value, but they're doing it in the context of business value.
0: How, so, so we've seen this attempted and, and of course we try to do this with our clients, but what, one of the questions that comes back is what are you held accountable to Yeah, and accountability is a really weird question in the product space because we, the easiest thing to be accountable to is shipping, shipping on time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so what, what does that shift in accountability go to? What, what do you start thinking about if they're held to, we're thinking about this outcome, we have this focus of engagement, right. And we're going to go explore different ways to increase that engagement is the accountability to the outcome of increasing engagement. Partially. Okay.
1: So here's the problem with anything in business. And any activity is part skill, part luck, yeah, right? And the, and the percentage of which is which plays a big role in how you should tackle it. There's oh, a okay. really good book about this called The Success Equation. Um, I'm not going to get the author's name right again on this one. That's either. fine. I'm
0: terrible at author's names. It's um, okay.
1: <laughs> but he just, he looks at, he actually applied, a lot of the examples he uses are sports. Some sports, they're high on the skill end of the spectrum and lower on the luck end of the spectrum. And other sports, they're high on the luck end and low on the skill end. Sure. And he talks about it as like, if you're given what sport you're playing, how should you tackle trying to get good at it? And then he talks about it in business and he talks about it in politics. But if you think about products, process, skill plays a role, right? And so you can be, there are some people that are better at building products than other people, whether that's product management, design, engineering, but luck plays a really big role, right? We see this a lot. Was WebFan a terrible company or were they just ahead of their market? Mm, right? Right um, time, right place. Look at look at how yeah. many food delivery companies there are now, right? Like I WebFan know. had a good idea. They just had really unfortunate timing. Yeah. We saw the same thing with the 08 downturn. Like lots of successful companies that yep. crashed in bombs, not because they were doing the wrong things, but luck played a role. Yep. Um, some people are gonna argue that the companies that survive survive because they were more skilled. But I think. Most humans undervalue luck because it's outside of our control. So we don't want to acknowledge it.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Whereas
1: I actually think it's really important that we acknowledge it because I think there's in this book, the success equation, he argues that when luck plays a big role, the primary thing you can focus on is process. That's the part that you control. Yeah, sure. We see this a lot in decision-making research, right? You can't evaluate a decision based on the outcome of the decision.
0: You have to evaluate mm.
1: the decision based on the process you use to make it um
0: good yeah because
1: out of your control right yeah so i think with discovery we do have discovery methods that are process oriented that we can look at how good are you at the process and in theory over time if you're better at the process you should have more impact on your outcomes but it won't be like a straight up into the right graph because luck is going to play a role and there's going to be blips and there's going to be learning curves, right? So the way that I hold would hold a team accountable is on the process side, I look for, there's two metrics that I primarily look for for improving the process. Um, cycle time between t- customer touch points. So a lot of people measure how many customers did you talk to this quarter? But the problem with that is I could talk to 12 customers in the last week And it looks like I'm on a once a week cadence. So I prefer to look at cycle time between customer touch points and how do you reduce that?
0: Interesting. I like that.
1: And then the second metric is your, it's essentially cycle time on assumption tests. You're trying to test a specific assumption. How long did it take to get data? Um, And this is trying to break the habit of people thinking of large scale tests that take three to six weeks to get data and getting in more thinking about with the quick and dirty test where I can get some data in a day or two. Um, What was it
0: that I heard at one point? And I don't know if this is true anymore, but they said like, you can get almost as much um, insight from eight people as you can from 50. And, and it was this idea of like, we, we try to balloon this idea of like, oh my gosh, we gotta do so much research. Yeah. It's like, or you could just talk to eight people, you know, now and that goes back to doing good interviews and asking the right questions and and positioning in the right way, but you don't, it doesn't have to be uh, an eight week process.
1: Yep. Yeah. So those are the two metrics I look at, but on the process side, it's not just about metrics. So even though I'm outcome-driven, there is this qualitative element we have to look at. And what I want to see leaders do is in their one-on-ones, I ask, when was the last time you talked to a customer? So reinforcing the cycle time metric. Mm -hmm. What did you learn that surprised you? And the reason why this question is so important is that the more you learn about your customers, the more susceptible you're going to be to confirmation bias. Of course. And the less you're going to hear from each new conversation. Unless you're actively looking for what is unique about the person that's sitting in front of me,
0: which so, is just such a, an incredible way to shift it shift the thinking to a really prioritizing learning. Yeah, I mean that yeah. we that we value learning over almost over doing, although you you can't learn without the do, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really good language, and I love the accountability that, or the the conversation that comes in. This is very actionable. You can tell me the last time you talked to a customer. Yeah. It's not, it's not ethereal. It's not, did you feel like you, you yeah. were getting better at your job or how do we measure that? But this is like, when did, when did you learn?
1: Yep. Yep. So that's, that's the process side. I would do those. There's the quantitative side of those two metrics. And then there's the qualitative one-on-one kind of conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, when someone's BSing you about what surprised them, right? Like it's pretty clear. Yep. Um, and then on the outcome side, a good team should be making progress towards their outcome. And if they're not, they should be dramatically increasing their assumption test rate. Okay. Right? They should be trying yeah. way more things and the diversity of the things that they're trying should go up.
0: So rather than saying, so what we might see is we've gone pretty far down this path and maybe it's just this one little feature if I just move this little thing over and and then that's, that's going to be it. Rather than you would say, if, if you've been working at this for any period of time and you're not seeing the, the qualitative, no, the quantitative results that you yeah. thought you would, then you need to be asking or at least uh, starting to entertain the idea of we need to diversify our, I want to get your language right, our solutions, our assumptions or our, our, um, our,
1: opportunities,
0: opportunities. That's the word I'm looking for. All of the above, all of the above.
1: So if I'm trying to reach an outcome and I'm eight weeks in and I'm making no progress, right. I'm going to let, and it's on a quarter basis. I'm going to let go of the fact I'm not going to hit my goal this quarter. That's the reality. I've got four weeks left. I'm not going to hit my goal. Yeah. So what's my goal for the rest of the quarter is to increase my rate of learning. So Mm. I'm going to try to parallel track different opportunities. I'm going to try to parallel track solutions. I'm going to try to run as many assumption tests as possible So when I go to my boss and say, hey, I missed my outcome, but here's what I learned to help make sure that I'm more likely to hit it next quarter.
0: Right. Which is valuable. And hopefully a good boss will see that value. Yeah. The question is, is how many iterations can you afford to spend?
1: And here's the reality. Some metrics have hit asymptotes. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to continue to move the metric. And that's also where I want to see. Like a big idea in the book is compare and contrast decisions.
0: Right, right. We need
1: that at the outcome level as well. Like maybe you've tapped out this outcome and you need to compare what kind of impact you could have on a different outcome.
0: That is such a hard thing to let go of or not let go of. Let's, I want to correct myself on that because you're not letting go of it. You're taking what you learned and reapplying it to that compare and contrast of what might be next. But the soul says, I'm letting go of this thing that I put a lot of effort into, or the thing that I made, or the thing that I'm pr- proud of. Yep.
1: Um,
0: and that's, as a humans, um, that's something we talk a lot about as like um, a human first approach. But as humans, we, we convince ourselves that this is the only way. Yeah. Um, and then well, you fall in love with it. You fall in love with a, um, a decision. Right. So I
1: think one of the most critical skills in any product person, and I don't mean product manager, I mean, product manager, designer, software engineer is lateral thinking. Mm -hmm. So lateral thinking, I'm, I'm exploring more than one solution. I'm exploring more than one opportunity. I have a theory of how my product is going to drive this business outcome. We tried, it didn't work. What's your next theory. Yeah. And a lot of people ask me like, how do I improve that? And my answer is do crossword puzzles. So if, you, if you're not a crossword puzzle person,
0: oh, man, here's I how- I suck it, at crossword puzzles, but okay, I keep going. I suck at
1: crossword puzzles for a long, long time too, but I really think the key skill of a crossword puzzle is lateral thinking. Okay. Novices think it's trivia, right? Like yes, I read a clue, the, I, I come up with would, the answer. I would
0: have said the same thing. I'm
1: terrible at tr- trivia. If we go to pub trivia, you do not want me on your team. I know,
0: I just sit there and drink while other people guess. Yeah, I
1: mean, it. I enjoy it because there's beer and it's fine. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but here's the thing, the way crossword puzzles are designed, at least good ones is- they're tricking you. Like you read the clue, it's a five letter answer. You come up with the first obvious one, but it's wrong. And when you get across one and you realize it's wrong, the work of the crossword puzzle is come up with another answer. Man, that's good. So the core skill I think of a crossword puzzle is this lateral thinking. Uh It's a really easy, safe way to to practice. And I used to hate crossword puzzles because I would try to do them in the newspaper. Yeah, and like, yeah. I'd have to cross them out. The Paper would be a mess. Or I'd try to erase and put holes in the newspaper. Yeah. I do my iPad now. I was going like, to say I
0: there's technology ways to I do I can now. make
1: as many mistakes as I need to. I love it. And you can subscribe like to the New York Times crossword puzzle archive.
0: Oh, I've heard for, about like, this. For like
1: a really small amount of money. Like you don't have to have a newspaper subscription. Which
0: is why a ton of people used to get the New York Times just to and do the get, crosswords.
1: You get access to every puzzle they've ever published.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: And then the other thing to know, it's funny that we're doing this big of a deep dive on crossword puzzles, but I, love I think it. it's cool. I love it. um, the other thing to know is that the way the New York Times crossword puzzle works is the easiest one is on Monday. And then oh. over the course of the week, moving to Saturday, they get harder and harder. Oh, and then Sunday is a mix of clue levels. So if you're brand new, just do a whole bunch of Mondays.
0: Oh, that's a and note. Then when you have I, a hand- I, I'm going to do that.
1: Yeah. And then when you have a handle on Mondays, move to Tuesdays. So like I'm a, I'm a, wednesday thursday puzzle solver by myself
0: i love that we can rank ourselves on the day that's such a really neat way to look at it
1: and then when my partner and i do them together we can tackle any of them but we kind of they take the harder ones take longer of course the other thing too is like find a buddy and then you can get into the harder ones
0: so going back how we got off on the rabbit trail of crossword is this idea of lateral thinking and one of the things that i love about our designers and i i don't i think you, you, hopefully you hire, you're looking for these things as you're hiring. And then some of it is learned by association. You start to pick up what other people are doing. We, we still on a pretty regular basis show work in progress. One of my big themes is if you've waited to show me something, when you're proud of it, you took too long. Me, I say me as like the Royal me, like whoever it is that you need to show it to it. It's it, you took too long because there's no chance for learning. There's very little chance for learning. There's very little chance for correction. There's very little chance for new opportunities um, if you're not showing work in progress. And, and what that then has to have a little bit of the thick skin of saying, when you critique or give feedback or say that you hate it or say that you love it, I have to be Open to all of that feedback, open to all of that thinking. And I think that might be in relationship to this lateral thinking of, I can't fall in love with this one thing. I have to be open to what the data says back to me, which might just be the way a person interprets it. Um, Now, we're really blessed to have some incredible designers that are cool with that. I've worked with designers that would be like, F you, you don't know, you're not a designer. I'm supposed to be the expert here. Go away. I think, oh, that's unfortunate because- you're getting. You're missing the point of what your your whole job's about.
1: Yeah. So what's good is that design as a profession is centuries old, right. and most design disciplines have this practice of the design critique. Yes. Yes. Which is great. We're training designers early on in their critique career that um, critiques are an important part of this, and to ask what else could we do.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Every
1: designer knows present three options.
0: Yep. Right? Exactly.
1: Um, so this is baked into design work. We're starting to see the same thing in engineering tactics with pair mm. programming.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, of course. You're not
1: just one person coming up with the perfect solution, pair with somebody, get multiple inputs, explore different perspectives. This is really grounded in problem-solving research. We mm. know from problem-solving research that for these wide open, ill-structured, open-ended problems, the more perspectives you explore, the better solutions you're going to get to.
0: Yeah, oh, that's so good, and and we've it, it, it took us a long time, probably mostly because of our team sizes to get to a pair programming um, capability. Yeah. Um, but what we what we ended up seeing with such incredible results, it it we had to prove it with clients. But once yep. we did, they were able to say, "Oh my gosh, like yes, m- keep those two people on the team, like keep yeah. keep them working together." And it doesn't we don't do it at one hundred percent, but like when that opportunity arises, that we can do it. It is powerful and it does exactly what you just described.
1: Even things like code reviews or pull Mm -hmm. requests, right? Like approve this before it gets baked in. um, is sort of this idea of just getting another perspective. Um, And I think that's really critical because one of the easiest ways to develop lateral thinking as a team is to start by individually doing the work because you're not all going to do it the same, right? So right out of the gate, you have three different versions.
0: This this brings me back to something that I I had a little apprehension with in one of your chapters. Yeah. Cause it's this adage and that the research shows, and I know I've seen the research. I, I want to kind of ignore it, but I get it, <laughs> which is this idea that like groupthink early on, early brainstorming together, mm-hmm. coming up with ideas together is not actually the most effective way. Mm-hmm. to source your ideas. T- talk a little bit about that, even though I don't want to hear it, but but, but you go yeah. there. Only because I just, I'm, side note, I'm an extremely extroverted person. I love being with people. So yep. part of it is just like, if I get the energy of being with people, I love that. But it, if it doesn't serve coming up with the most, most or the right outcomes, talk a little bit about that. It's not about necessarily sourcing the ideas together.
1: Yeah. So the, the beauty of this is you get the benefit of both. So yeah. first of all, what what's wrong with this traditional brainstorming and get everybody in a room generating ideas out loud together, riffing on each other's ideas? It's fun yeah. for extroverts. Let's clarify. Uh, it is so fun for people me. Some people I know. really I'm like it.
0: Yep. Other yep.
1: people really hate it. Yeah. yeah. But what's the problem with it? The problem with it is um, the first person to start throwing out ideas. hmm sets the direction of what types of ideas are Uh, going to be considered. Right. 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 Second problem with it. Not everybody has to put in the same level of work. And you've probably seen this in every group brainstorming session you're in one or two people are off to the races and everybody else is just sort of tagging along. Yep. And it's not because they're being lazy. It's probably because they're introverted, honestly. Um, Right. Because somebody else
0: is filling the space.
1: Yep. There's this idea of um, academics have such terrible names, but there's this idea of like um, I think it's just product- productive production blocking. It's like, mm-hmm. You have an idea, it's on the tip of your tongue. I shout out an idea, you forget your idea.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? It's that yeah. simple. So there's a lot of like group dynamics that makes this format not work at all. So there's a really simple solution take five minutes and generate ideas individually on your own.
0: Now, are you, do you think it's okay to do something like, um, you know, Google ventures or whoever's design sprint methodology of the together alone where you're, yeah, you're okay, totally okay. Now, so we do that. We, we, I would, that's I would one of the ways we approach it
1: Prefer to give people a little more time and space just because some uh-huh. people are most creative in the morning. Some people are most creative. at it's good night. good point. It's good point. And so within that five
0: minutes that the timer started. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Some, you know, some people think best when they're going for a walk, like yep. what I would do is say, okay. Tomorrow we're going to get together and discuss ideas between now and tomorrow. Everybody come in with 10 ideas. I love that. Now it's up to every individual to figure out how they're going to generate their ideas on their own. They have time to go look for inspiration. They have time to go seek out analogous solutions. Right? So that's what I would do. And then in the meeting, you get the benefit of this extroverted sharing and riffing and building on ideas because you still do the round Robin of share all the ideas and make sure everybody understands them. And then the real magic happens in the second round of individually ideating.
0: So I love this because we've actually, I, I, I want to echo that because we have found that it's almost always the second round where people go, oh, oh, can we do this again? I, yeah. I've got some things I want to run with, but I don't want to share it. You know, like it is that second, or if, if I understand right, it's that second round of sourcing, like now being inspired by what you've heard yep. and seen come back with more.
1: And specifically teaching this mixing and matching skill. So in the product world, people misunderstand it. They go, oh, I'm going to take idea A and idea B, and I'm going to mash them together and create idea A, B. That's not the idea of mixing and matching, right? It's more of, I'm going to take an element from A yes, an element from B and create C that looks nothing like A or B.
0: Yeah, that's good. And
1: that ability, like learning to just like, um, gosh, who is it? James Altucher talks about it as idea sex.
0: Oh yeah. Random ideas
1: and figure out like what their kid would look like, which is such a beautiful analogy. Right. So good. So it's such, it's a really fun lateral thinking game. Like I'm going to take this element of like, I have stickies open on my desktop. Stickies are persistent. I'm going to take this idea of persistence and I'm going to combine it with, I have Slack open on my desktop of like. Ephemeral conversation. What's yep. the mashup? What does that turn into, right? And it's just it's idea play. Yeah, it's just, how that. do you play with these ideas, bounded by we're trying to solve this specific problem.
0: Okay, so I always have to ask, and I, I this is I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but what what do you think people get wrong as they're trying to think about? I when well, I want to touch on maybe. And I'm being respectful of time. I'm looking at our time, going, oh my gosh, how does an hour go uh, go by <laughs> yeah. so quickly? Well, let me me do this before we get to the, 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 what are you, what do you think people do wrong? There's a third word in your book title and it's habits. I'm a habit nerd. I love the idea of habits. So talk to me a little bit about what does it look like to build habits in this work?
1: Yeah, this is a really core idea to the book. So I will share, I'm like one of the most motivated, driven, willpower, brute force person, people you will meet. And I have learned that's not enough, Mm. right? Like it really does start with laying a foundation of habits. Right. And the things that I've built as habits, I do automatically without thinking about them. Right. And the reason why I think this is so important with continuous discovery is that our organizations are so obsessed with delivery. Mm -hmm. Delivery is urgent, Mm -hmm. right? And urgency, as we know, almost always trumps important, but not urgent. And so discovery is important, but rarely urgent in our organizations.
0: Right. Quad two, quad two. Hopefully
1: someday that will change, but that's the reality we live in. And so you're not going to will your way there. You're not going to brute force your way there because every product team has weeks where a customer is upset, a release went astray, and we just, it's all hands on deck. Yep. And then what happens when we stop a habit? It's really hard to pick it back up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So anybody who's struggled with eating healthy or regular exercise or trying to reduce how much they drink, you do well for a little. You do well for a little while, and then you we call it falling off the bandwagon, right? Right for a reason because you just like crash and burn, and then you got to climb back up and try again. So I'm with the book. I'm trying to lay this foundation of look, let's take this agile mindset of start really small and iterate. Mm -hmm. and build strong habits so that we get out of this boom and bust cycle and we get more to this just continuous cadence of how do we make it easier to do the right things than to not?
0: I know that there there are times in my life, whether it's personal or professional, where I have had pivotal moments, right? Where Mm -hmm. there's something drastically had to change. It might be, you know, for us getting married or having our first kid or whatever that might be. Like there's lots of those moments where you're just like, had no idea what that was going to do to my life. But for the most part, I find myself being a p- type of person that I like creating habits because I can start small and I can kind of stay in this pretty reasonable rhythm. It's why I don't like new year's resolutions.
1: Yeah. Me neither. Because
0: the idea of like trying to tear off a band aid or trying to jump into something or, you know, or even doing like a whole 30 diet or something like that, that to me is just doomed to fail. Whereas if I can do something simple and just continue to do it. So I got into cycling a couple of years ago Yep. and it was just go for a bike ride. Don't worry about how far you go. Don't worry about how fast you are. Don't use your Garmin computer yet. Although I did eventually, um, it was like, just, just go for a ride and then, you know, learn how to ride, learn how to go up a hill, learn how to not get hit by cars, all that good stuff. Yep. And then getting to the point where you can go, I can ride a little faster. Now I can go a little further. And yeah, now my disciplines are able to take me further and do bigger and different things, but I don't have to start there. And I think that's something that a lot of organizations struggle with because they think, oh, I just need to pivot. Yeah. Like it has to be a massive pivot right now. Yeah. Like, or what's something small we could change that might actually have really big impact or have big results?
1: Yeah. So I've been going through a really similar phase right now with um, fitness. So I'm a really active person. I'm a mountain, it's summer, I mountain bike. My partner and I both mountain bike a ton, but it's boom and bust, right? We have weeks where we'll mountain bike four or five days a week. And then we'll have a week where we're busy, probably because we're going to Portland or something. Yep, yep. And then we just don't do anything. We don't do anything. And then we come back to Bend and- it's two awful slogs of week so rebuilding our cardio. It's not very uh-huh, fun, right? Uh uh-huh.
0: huh. Hopping up and that it, hill again. Yeah.
1: I used to wear a whoop band. So oh, a whoop gosh, band is like yes. designed for athletes. Yep. And no matter how much I exercised, it always told me I wasn't doing enough. <laughs> and I was like, this is not the product for me to build the right habits. That's and right. What did I do? I replaced it with an Apple Watch. And yeah. here's why it's not about how much I mountain bike. Like I am active enough. The limiting factor is I sit at a computer all day. I yep. just need to build the habit of standing more. Mm-hmm. I need to build the habit of drinking more water. I need to build the habit of like get this many move calories, whether that's mountain biking, doing a garage workout, literally going for a walk in my neighborhood. Yep. It's a smaller, it's smaller habits to start with. Yeah. And I'll I wore a whoop band for a year and I kept trying to get it to change my behavior. Boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. If I was a professional athlete it'd be amazing. But I'm not. Of course, of course not, of course. not amazing no, not
0: either. Yeah. Or me,
1: um, Apple Watch was clearly designed start small, yep. build from there. Yeah. So I try to do the exact same thing with the discovery habits. Right? Like I encourage teams to talk to customers every week. If you've never talked to a customer, don't start worry there. about it. Yeah. Talk to the first customer. Yep. Right? And then so iterate good. your way there.
0: I love this idea of starting small, building the habits. I, I'm there. I mean, there's lots of books on habits. Um, the Charles Duhigg, the power of habit was like yep. at the time was very transformational for me. It was like, oh, this is, there's, there's a very clear way of, I can set having a watch, having a cue yep. to this, the routine reward. I took it back to the company and they're like, dude, you were really hyped on this idea. Um, we James have
1: Claire's book is also excellent. Yes.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. We have, um, we've kind of created a framework inside of CREMA, every, you know, every organization creates a framework, but we, ours is around this idea of postures, disciplines, and structures. And so the idea of postures are mindsets, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the mindsets that will both motivate and and change the way we're thinking about what our disciplines are or our habits? What are the things that we do? And, um, and they can ebb and flow and they pull on each other. And, and sometimes your, your posture, your mindset isn't there, but you Mm -hmm. just keep doing the discipline. Um, There was a great quote that I uh, came across the other day. That was this idea of like, love, love, love is actually the byproduct of, you know, spending time with someone long, Mm -hmm. long enough to when you then, then you fall in love. You don't fall in love and then react to love. Yep. You, you fall in love because of a discipline of being in proximity with another human being. Yep. And, and I loved that because we all think that we should just like shift our mindset. It's like, That's really hard to do unless you do something. And I think that's what you're suggesting. Talk to a customer. Start small. Start doing that. You'll start to get that little excitement off of, oh, this is right or this is wrong or I have data or I have something to make a decision off of going back to the trio or to the leaders or whoever I'm talking to.
1: Yeah, I think the doing is the key part. Like I don't think we learn without doing at all. Yeah. And it took me a long time to come around to that because like, I'm a heady person. I like to read. I like to think. Yeah, me too. Um, but I got introduced to uh, John Dewey's work. So John Dewey was an educational philosopher from the turn of the like 19th to oh, 1900s. yes, Yeah. And he talks about like his work is you see it everywhere. Like if you're familiar with the OODA loop, yeah, like
0: yep. observe that's probably the connection I would know. Yeah. Like
1: it's the root, the root of that is Dewey's work, which is um You have to act and then reflect on the action for learning Mm -hmm. to take place. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is so core to the idea of habits. It's so core to the idea of discovery. It's so core to how we learn, which is you could sit in a room and think about it all you want. And then as soon as you start doing something, the vast majority of that thinking gets thrown out the window.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I want to ask two, two kind of wrap up questions. One, what's the the most simple thing that you think that people just get wrong, whether it's the first habit step or maybe it's, it's in a macro way, um, where's something you see that people just, they trip over this every single time.
1: Finding the first customer to talk to Hmm. They make it a much bigger deal than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. They think about like, they got to go ask permission. They got to turn it into a whole program. They have to think about how they're going to talk to a customer all the time. You probably have a customer in your personal network. Yeah. Right. You probably know somebody who knows a customer. You definitely know a sales rep who knows a customer or a customer, like an account manager who knows a customer, right? Like don't turn it into this big hairy ball hairball of a problem. Just if I gave you a time box, which is what I do for all of my coaching teams, talk to a customer in the first in the next three days. I don't care how you do it, I don't care who the customer is, I don't care how relevant it is to your work, find a customer who uses your product or service and have a conversation.
0: We were working with a cybersecurity company one time, and um, it was a brand new product. They hadn't really been in the product space. It was mostly a services organization. And so they were building a product. They knew the CISO of this very large bank. And this guy had one of the biggest security teams in the industry. And he said, I think I can get him to look at our product, give us feedback. And I said, that's great. Let's let's chat with him. So we give him a call. We're all in the room together, all ready to learn from this this user interview. And um, we realized about five minutes into the call, thinking that he's looking at the product with us. He's like walking his dog in a park yeah, and completely just like flipping or just like not giving us the attention that we thought that we deserved, if we're honest. Yeah. And, um, so my product manager just started texting him photos of the product said, Hey, I know you're, I know you're out and about, can you just take a look at this? I just texted you some photos. Cause we had his number and he said, Oh, 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 this is fun. This is good. I, I want to come to Kansas City. Like, let me come hang out with you guys. And it ended nice. up turning into this thing. Had she not just taken that little step to say, like, oh, let me just go a little bit further, yeah. to get to get the insight from you to go a little. We could have just said, well, I'll just write this one off. yep. Yeah. and um, and then that ended up creating this this discipline, where especially with that client, then they saw the value because yeah. the client was a little skeptical putting their agency in front of their their potential customer, oh, by the yeah. way, the CIso of one of the biggest security groups in the world. And, and then they end up literally flying here to spend time with us all in our, our space. And I think it's those little things that are just like taking a little step of le- a leap of faith, a little yeah. bit of a risk take. Um,
1: well, and sometimes it's not even that big of a risk. People just don't, again, it's that lateral thinking. They don't imagine yeah, yeah. how they might find somebody. So I was working with a team. Their customers were clinicians, so doctors and nurses. Yeah. And they didn't have permission from their company to go reach out to their, their customers were hospitals, hospitals didn't want them talking to their clinicians and they they literally, they, they made badge software, like to badge into a workstation, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. every clinician on the planet has to use of course, hundred percent of them. Right. They're struggling. They, they tried every Avenue in their company and we're sitting on the call and I go, Hey, does anybody have a doctor in your family? And the product manager goes, yeah, my doctor is my uncle is a doctor. How about go talk to your uncle? Right, don't, like,
0: don't have to go through the normal channels. We yeah.
1: make it so much harder than it needs to be.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Okay, and second question, what are you excited about? I mean, obviously you've launched your book not that long ago, and I'll let you get to that here in a second, but I, what, what's getting you excited about the, this world of product, things that you're seeing that are going well, um, or are you things that, that might be turning in, in a direction that you're excited about?
1: A few things. So I know the book is just the beginning, most people don't read a book and then magically do everything it says in the book. Sure. Um, so I'm working on a whole set of things to support the book. Um, we launched with the book, book launch, we launched a membership program. Love it. Um, it's just a community of people trying to put the habits into practice. And it's super fun for me because um, when I work as a consultant or as a coach, I'm being brought in by a head of product. They're telling me to work with their teams. Some of those teams are excited. Some of those teams are less uh-huh, than excited. Yeah.
0: The joy of a consultant, yeah.
1: People that opt in are so eager to learn and so fun to work with. So I'm starting to create a set of products and services for individuals who are choosing to invest in themselves. Um, And that's just really delightful for me. Like I could hang out with people that are eager to learn all day long. Um, And so I'm making a shift in my business to like increase the amount of time I hang out with those folks. So that's something I'm super excited about because ultimately I want this book to work for people. Um, And I know the book is the first step. Um, the other thing that I'm really excited about came out, um, came about cause of 2020. Um, I think this started for me way back in 2013. You might, re- I think it was 2013. Um, there was this big hoopla about the Facebook social contagion study. Do you remember mm-hmm, this?
0: Mm-hmm, right.
1: And the media wrote about it. Like Facebook was the devil and other people wrote about it, defending Facebook. And it was really open this big can of worms about the data that we collect yeah. and how we use it. Yeah. so it got me thinking about this question. And at the time I wrote this blog post and I just said, okay, I wouldn't have thought Facebook was evil. If I was at that company, I would have thought what they did was fine. Sure. And we're getting black and white feedback that the public is not okay with it. Mm -hmm. So we clearly need an ethical standard here. Mm -hmm. And so I started to play with like, maybe it's as simple as these three questions. What data are you collecting? How are you using it? And what data are you collecting? Four questions. What data are you collecting? How are you using it? Do your customers understand that? Mm-hmm. Are they okay with it?
0: Mm-hmm. And the yeah. vast
1: majority of companies fail on those four questions, yeah. right? So that planted a seed for me, but I was busy. I didn't really dig into that seed. It just percolated. It just started growing. And then in 2020, um, the George Floyd incident happened, of course, and we saw a huge like social movement around so- social inequities and um, justice in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I started seeing. More and more stories about how technology is replicating the social inequities we see in our communities into our products. Uh, And one of the things that I teach and have taught for a long time is how to test the assumptions your products are based on. And one of the categories of assumptions I talk about are ethical assumptions. That's good. And it was really rooted in this data world. And so for the book, I expanded it to include who are you choosing to serve? Who are you leaving out? Um, But even since finishing writing the book for the last, 7 months i've just been digging in on this topic and i probably will release a companion to the book i love it That just we have a lot of people talking about ethics of products yeah but we don't have a lot of people giving people a how to
0: yeah we all it's, have good it's still intent. very ethereal of yeah. of oh well it's a problem but what do we do with that
1: so we like we all have good intent but nobody knows what to do yeah So I really want to fill that gap and I'm at the beginning of this. I don't have all the answers yet. I probably will never have all the answers, Uh, but I do want to start to get clarity on what does that look like? And how do we need to change the way we we build products?
0: The best things are are difficult and hard and challenging. So you're stepping into some challenging topics there, which I I'm excited for. Well, Teresa, this has been awesome. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'd love for you to, to tell us where can people learn more about you, your book, your, your services, uh, maybe your membership. Where can we learn more about you?
1: Yeah, so first of all, the easiest place to go is just producttalk.org. Um, you'll see a, right on the cover, a giant picture of the book and where you can buy it. Of course. Um, it's available in paperback and Kindle and EPUB if you prefer the non-Amazon world. Um, Eventually we'll be out in Audible. I just need a large chunk of time to record it. Fair. And then um, uh, I do know plenty of people that read books and never take action. And I really want people to take action. So we did launch the community to help with that. So we have a membership program, um, which you'll find at the bottom of that producttalk.org page. And then we also have a whole bunch of skill building classes. So if you wanna like level up your skill in customer interviews, or you wanna learn how to define good outcomes, or if you want to learn how to map out the opportunity space, things like that. Um, We have a Product Talk Academy where we're just teaching people how to do this well.
0: Uh, Teresa, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do in general, but also for creating the book. I'm attempting to write a book right now. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I've grown a company. I've started a company and I don't know. Uh, We'll see if it ever gets uh, done, but this has been transformational. Like I said, before we started recording, our entire product management team is reading it right now and loving it. So thank you for putting this out in the world. Thank you for doing the good work that you do. I really appreciate you joining me.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And I will agree writing a book is very hard. It gets easier.
0: Okay. That's good hope. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with the support of Gabby Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.